So I had a birthday this week and a friend took me out for dinner and we celebrated and we talked about good food and we had a lot of fun. But one thing that he did throughout the dinner that really moved me was he asked me lots of questions. Uh, he asked me questions about the year that I've just lived through, about the best parts and the hardest parts. He asked me about my hopes for the future. He asked me about things that I've learned in the year that I've just lived through. And it felt like love, not just because it's always nice that people in your life care enough to ask, because maybe they're interested in the answers, but it also felt like love because by asking me these questions, he was drawing me deeper into my own life and my own experience and helping me uh, face and learn from and grow from the year that I've just lived through. And that's a really kind thing to do for somebody that you care about, to help them recognize the reality that they're living in and to grow more deeply into who they want to be. Questions have a way of doing that. And that's also one of the reasons that we've, in the last several weeks, been in a series that returns us to a practice that we've tried to return to often, which is to let ourselves be interrogated by the questions that God asks us in scripture. And we do this uh, because we believe that it's one of the ways that God loves us and carries us forward in growing and being transformed and reconciling ourselves to the lives that we are living and seizing the opportunities that God has for us. So, uh, so we've been doing that for a while. And if you've tuned in, you know, like we've heard the question from Genesis where God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? And in that question, we hear a loving invitation to stop hiding and to stand at the center of your actual life, not the life that you wish you had, not to pretend that you are someplace that you wish you were, not to be living in the future or the past, but to be right here and right now and to begin our journey with God in that honest, vulnerable place. Uh, we've heard the question again, what do you want? And perhaps the surprise that God is actually interested in our desire and that the deepest, best, truest desires inside can become a kind of compass for us that can move us toward God and toward the lives that we are meant to live. Uh, we've talked about the question, do you want to get well? Which can seem like an insult to anyone who isn't well and struggling until you realize that so many of us resign ourselves to um, deciding that the way things are is the way that they will always be. And that perhaps we are not eligible for wellness. And perhaps Jesus knows that we need to come to a place where we wake up again and say yes again to wanting to be well. Uh, we've heard the question, what do you have in your hand? Uh, to consider that um, perhaps God's given you what you need. And if God hasn't, perhaps your neighbor has what you need. We've heard the question, where were you when I created the earth? That uh, sort of harrowing encounter between God and Job that leads Job out of his suffering, but not in a way that brings closure, but rather in a way that draws him into the mystery that he's a part of. Uh, we've heard the question, what is your worry doing for you? And today we want to wrap it up with one more question from scripture. Now today's uh, text and question, uh, these are going to be uh, things that you've probably heard before. We're going to turn to a passage in scripture that's really quite familiar to a lot of people. Uh, but I hope today we can hear some fresh things in this text in light of uh, the world that we're living in right now and where we find ourselves in it. So uh, we're going to jump into Luke chapter 10. And uh, here there's a, a student asking Jesus a question and Jesus sort of returning fire and bringing a question back to him. And so in Luke 10, we read that on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? 
Now, again, this is uh, maybe a familiar passage that you've heard before, and we've even talked about this passage before. Uh, before we get into Jesus' response to this guy, I just want to observe a couple of things. So this guy knows that the law is love, and it's not just love for God, but it's love for neighbor. And he asked Jesus to clarify, who is my neighbor? Like he's looking for a limiting principle on the law of love. And in previous seasons of my life, when I've read this passage and worked out what's going on in it, it's been easy for me to have a kind of judgmental relationship with this person who's looking for a limiting principle on the law of love. Because we are so good at this. We are so tempted to draw lines in the sand that some people find themselves on our side of and other people don't. And we love the ones who are on our side of whatever line has been drawn and we don't feel obligated to love the ones who aren't. And what ends up happening before you know it is that putting limiting principles around the law of love, we end up loving the people who look like us, who relate to us, and we begin to other and diminish and allow a world that abuses people who don't. So like, it's really easy to read this uh, interrogation between Jesus and this person who's asking for a limiting principle on the law of love and to be sort of like judgmental toward him. And I have felt that way in previous seasons when I've read this passage. Uh, but then 2020 happened. And let me explain what I mean. And to do that, let me go back a few years to the year 1992. And in 1992, a writer named Carla Joynson was observing nurses. And as she observed these nurses, she observed some things that a bunch of them were struggling with. She observed that many of them blamed others for suffering, that many of them were retreating into self-isolation, many of them had difficulty concentrating, many of them had insomnia, many of them had nightmares, hopelessness, or feelings of hopelessness or powerlessness. And she hadn't been looking for like a, a thing to diagnose, she was there doing research for her writing. But upon observing these traits among people whose work brings them very close to suffering on a daily basis, the suffering that their patients are going through, she coined the term for the first time, compassion fatigue. And since then, uh, that phrase has made its way into our shared consciousness, and I think for good reasons. Uh, some people also in the field call it secondary trauma stress. And it's the idea that perhaps vicariously or by being proximate to other people's suffering or trauma, we can get worn down run down. And perhaps in 1992, this was peculiar to people whose profession brings them into repeated contact with people who are suffering. And so uh, she writes about not just nurses, but it's reported to show up among, say, first responders and police officers and doctors and counselors and other people, hospice workers, who are proximate on a daily basis to other people's suffering. Back then, it seemed like it was an experience unique to certain vocations or lines of work. But then the internet happened and social media happened and cable news happened. And we became confronted on like an hourly basis with suffering from all over the world, different kinds of suffering, whether it's sickness or the suffering that comes from the effects of climate change or the suffering that comes from violence or brutality or racism. Like you could go down the list and rather than certain lines of work bringing certain people into contact with some of this stuff, Pretty much all of us are being confronted day after day with image after image of suffering in the world. And compassion fatigue is a pretty good word for what I think a lot of us are going through. And frankly, as I've been reading this passage this, this past week or so, and thinking about 2020, the year that we are in and all the suffering and disruption that has come with it, uh, I find myself desperate for a limiting principle on the law of love. Because I don't know what to do with all of the need and all of the hurt. And there's a lot of ways that we can help, right? There's a lot of causes that we can get behind and donate to and give our voice to and our influence to. 
And yet, like, if you open yourself up to everything that is broken and hurting in every victim that we have in the world right now, it can be overwhelming. And so this time reading this passage, I know for me and maybe for you, I can find myself not judging the question asker who's looking for a limiting principle on the law of love, but actually identifying with him. Finding myself in solidarity with someone who says, Jesus, please, you've got, you've got to like help me work this out. I need some categories, some lists, some rules to help me think this through. And so uh, I want to read Jesus' response with you, uh, but not uh, from a distance, not sort of hovering over this text, but like there inside the story with the man who's desperate for Jesus to give him some kind of relief. And from that place, uh, let's hear what Jesus has to say. In reply, this is Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, before we go further, uh, Jesus' original here is they would know this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And they might not have known the stats I'm about to share with you, but they know the terrain. The stats are that Jerusalem sits 2,700 feet above sea level. Jericho sits 800 feet below Jericho. And it's just 17 miles between the two, which means there's a drop of something like 200 feet per mile when you walk that road. Now, it's not just a drop, but it's barren terrain. It's sort of desert. And there are nooks and crannies and caves along the way where it's easy for bandits to hide. And so I think Jesus is here is um, immediately sense a bit of danger in this story. Perhaps uh, a little bit of anxiety bubbles up in them. Perhaps their heart speeds up a little bit when Jesus uh, sets out a description of a place where there's a threat. And then we read uh, that this person fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, when he came by to the place where he saw him, passed by on the other side. So a priest and a Levite see a man who looks like he might be dead and they pass by on the other side. And this is really helpful for me right now because I think one thing we are realizing is that seeing more need in the world doesn't always inspire us to lean toward it. Sometimes seeing more need in the world inspires us to run away from it, to back into our corners. If there's a little bit of need, we can lean forward, but if there's a lot of need or if it's dangerous out there, or if the needs that we see make us feel threatened for some reason or another, we actually might lean away from the hurt and the harm that we see in the world. Uh, just was learning uh, today, in fact, about a recent report that in the wake of the racial reckoning that we are going through right now in the United States, um, the, uh, an alarming number of churches through, through polling and data report that they are more reticent and less interested in talking about race now than they were before, say, the murder of George Floyd and everything else that we've seen in the last few months. Now, um, I think that's really damaging and really tragic, but it's an example of something that, that we all do, which is that sometimes when we see need or a threat, it doesn't move us toward those things in compassion. It moves us away from those things in self-protection. And it seems like that's what's happening with the priest and the Levite. Now, if you've maybe studied this passage or heard what people have to say about it, they might point out that, um, like for the priest, for example, he especially is interested in not being defiled by a corpse because it would make him perhaps unfit to do his work as a priest because there's a, an idea of corpse defilement and the purity laws of their time. Uh, Side note, interestingly, uh, one of the commentators points out that one of the early rabbinical teachers instructs priests that the best thing you can do when you see the looks of a corpse is maintain six feet of social distance. So, uh, so they're walking along and they see what might be a dead body or might be somebody in great need. And the one thing they don't do is move toward the need. Uh, they lean back. And frankly, um, 
I'm not saying this is a good impulse, but I think I understand the impulse uh, because when you see a need, you might feel threatened. And these two men seem to feel the same. But then, of course, uh, Jesus goes on to the part of the story that a lot of us are most familiar with when he says that a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Now, a Samaritan, uh, for many of Jesus' audience, are a group of people who are ethnically, politically, religiously, and morally suspect at best. And so he raises up a dubious hero. And he says that the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Then Jesus asks this man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this is an interesting uh, little thing that's just happened here. Um, and I think if, if we read it quickly, we might miss the, the move that Jesus just made. He's, um, he's doing something very sophisticated in the telling of this parable. And sometimes to help people realize how we miss it, I'll, I'll have people like students together who are familiar with this whole exchange because it's kind of a famous passage from the Gospels. And I'll say, hey, we all know the story about Jesus and the person asking about the law and love and the Good Samaritan, right? And everybody will say, oh, yeah, we know that story. And I'm like, okay, well, let's just kind of work through it in its paces very quickly, right? So again, like, what's the question that the person asked Jesus? And everybody will say, who is my neighbor? And then I'll say, right, and then Jesus tells the story, yada, yada, yada. And at the end, what's the answer? And everybody says, the Samaritan. But of course, that's not the answer to this guy's question. Uh, this guy's asking, who is my neighbor in terms of who is a legitimate or eligible recipient of my love and my care and my mercy? So he's asking, who's the object of my love? And in the story that Jesus tells, he creates a character that's so nondescript, it does nothing to answer the question. He just has a man who happens to be beaten and left naked by the side of the road. Some have pointed out that being left naked means that the people walking by wouldn't even be able to tell if this person's like Jew or Gentile or Samaritan, wouldn't be able to tell if they're upper class or lower class, if they're wealthy or poor. He basically like gives the man a non-answer, just sort of a stand-in, a, a fill-in to answer the question of who is worthy of my love so that Jesus can relocate, like reframe the whole question to say, you're looking out upon the world wondering which of the people around you qualify for your love. Wondering which kind of person, which group of people, like, like where do you direct your love as if it's going to be something in them that makes them worthy or unworthy. But Jesus doesn't really answer that question because to do so would be to agree that there are limiting principles on the law of love. Instead, he creates a generic character with so few markers or descriptions that it does us no good in answering the man's question. And then Jesus flips it around and says, who was the neighbor to the man in need? As if to say the question isn't who out there is worthy or eligible for your love. Like, like stop thinking that way. Stop looking out upon the world trying to figure out who's worthy and instead ask yourself, Will you be the one who loves? When you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you move through your day, stop trying to filter the world. Stop trying to adjudicate the world. Stop trying, trying to, to judge who's in the in-group or the out-group or who, who you're called to and who you're not. Just keep asking yourself, will you be the one who loves? And frankly, um, when I sit with that reading, it's really hard for me. I talked about compassion fatigue uh, a, a minute ago. Um, 
Let me tell you a little bit about how I tend to show up in the world. So if you're familiar with, with the Enneagram, uh, which might make you roll your eyes or might make you really excited or you might be really confused right now, Enneagram is um, a way of thinking about how human beings show up in the world and how human beings fail to show up in the world. And the Enneagram says there's sort of nine different ways that we work that out. And they're just numbered. And so I sort of show up in the world as a five. And what's interesting is each number tends to have a core fear. And people who show up in the five space, one of the core fears that drives them is a fear of depletion or of people taking too much from them, of their energy being taken away, their resources being taken away. This is sort of a core thing for people who are shaped the way that I am shaped. And so like I, I read this story, I think about the world that we're living in right now. And I really believe that Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you a limiting principle on the law of love. I'm just going to ask you, will you be the kind of person who loves? And frankly, part of me is like, well, crap. Like, I could really use some filters because there is so much need and I only have so much to give. And I'm not even talking about money. I'm talking about energy, compassion, heart, empathy, attention. Like I only have so much of that and there's so much need out there. And so I've been sitting with this text uh, all week and I've been frustrated by this text and this question that Jesus is asking as he says, uh, will you be the one who loves? And uh, another thought has dawned on me and it goes back to that birthday dinner and the birthday reflections that I've been working through. So uh, to be honest, when my friends started asking me questions about the year that I've just lived through, I had a really hard time answering. Part of it is I think COVID has really, it feels like like half a year has like disappeared in some ways. I feel sort of lost in the year and unaware of what has transpired. Um, the high points and the low points, they all just seem kind of like fuzzy to me right now. And then the other thing I realized was that prior to last year's birthday, so a little more than a year ago, I walked through a really painful, hard season. And the shadow that that season cast over my life continued um, over into the year that I'm in right now. And so I kept thinking of life beyond the year that I've just been through. And then that reflection took me to an even wider view and as I, I try to spend my birthday reflecting on um, where like the grace of God has met me and where my calling has been sharp and clear and when I've gotten a little fuzzy or lost in my direction so that I can move forward with better direction. And as I like searched out my life and did a bit of an inventory on where have I been most um, clear on who I am and what I am here for and when have I found the most joy and what have I been giving myself to that's been most worthwhile? I realized very clearly that there have been moments in my life where I was most open and surrendered and willing to say to God, you can call me anywhere, you can direct me in any direction. Like, like I trust that my life is held within a larger frame of love and benevolence and goodness. And so if that's really true, that I can open up and I can let my guard down and my defenses can be dropped and I don't have to fortify myself. I can just be available and surrendered. And when I look back on my life, I, I know when those moments have been, when my heart was most in that position. And I know all of the good and all of the joy that has come from those seasons. Now, I don't mean they were easy because love will always cost you something. But what I realized is when I've been most open to love, to the, the command of love and the current of love, I've never been depleted. I mean, I've been poured out, yeah, but more has filled me up. People have taken and it's cost me something, but I've somehow ended up with more than I started with, like greater fullness, greater joy, uh, a greater sense that I'm a part of a story of love. And as I thought about that and what Jesus says here and what he teaches elsewhere, it dawned on me 
that, that, that love isn't just the command because it's the command. It's not just a rule that God imposes on the world, that perhaps love is the command because love is the very nature of God, which is what passages say in the New Testament, like in 1 John, when the writer says God is love, that love is so intrinsic to God that you could equate it with God. So that when Jesus asks us, will you be the one who loves? I don't think he's asking, are you gonna be able to generate enough love for all of the need that's in this world? Are you gonna be able to come up on your own with all the resources that the world is begging for? I don't think that's how it works for Jesus. I think perhaps he knows this thing that I keep forgetting, which is that love is not something that we create or generate, but it's something that we participate in. And we simply decide every day whether our lives will be a conduit for that current of love that is flowing or whether fear and defensiveness and apathy and anger, whether these defensive feelings that get riled up when we see people suffering, whether we will let those things choke off the current of love or whether we will settle back down into the current of love and let it flow through us. And I think um, Jesus knows that uh, as long as we are looking for limiting principles on the law of love, as long as we are trying to minimize the impact of this command, uh, we will fail to step into the waters and swim with the current of love that's not ours to generate, it's simply ours to say yes to. And so um, I don't know where you're at in this season and I don't know how hard it's been to not just deal with your own need, but to deal with the needs uh, that are all around you. Um, but I'm certain Jesus is asking every one of us, will you be the one who loves? And that with that question comes a, a sacred invitation to open our hearts up to the current that's flowing. There's a theologian named Karl Rahner who was especially active and important like in the 1960s. And Rahner's famous for a number of reasons. Uh, but there's a quote that's uh, from him that, that I think is really insightful. And he said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or they will not exist. And I don't know what all he meant by that, but I know how I hear that in the world that we are living in today. And how I hear that in light of my own experience is that Doctrine and theological ideas are really good and important, but they're not enough. And that morals and ethics are really important, but they are not enough because I don't know that um, with our own willfulness and strength, we can sustain the kind of lives that are required to put this world back together right now. And by the way, that's not even a judgment on what you believe or don't believe, and whether you find yourself like identifying as like a Christian or a believer in God or not. It's more about a disposition of the heart. And I think, uh, among other things, a mystic is someone who has found a way to trust and to open their heart to the mystery that we are a part of and the current that's flowing. And I just can't help but think that with this question, Jesus is inviting every one of us to be a bit of a mystic and to live lives that are surrendered and open so that the current can just flow through us. And uh, one other note about the story that Jesus tells, which is um, when he raises up a Samaritan as the hero, yeah, I think he does that perhaps to disrupt some of the biases and bigotry of his audience. But I also wonder if he's making another point, which is this Samaritan, through the eyes of his audience, doesn't have any status, isn't known for being a good kind of person. In fact, if anything, that label on his life uh, perhaps brings up ideas that they're the ones that get everything wrong. They're the ones that corrupt our faith and they've mistaken some things. And yet in the story, it seems Jesus is saying that even a Samaritan can become a hero. Even the most dubious kind of person can become a hero. Even people who have nothing to brag about and no status, they don't even have a moral history that they can be proud of. Yet, if you love, 
uh, you'll find yourself uh, living a heroic kind of life, a good kind of life, a beautiful kind of life, the kind of life worth celebrating and telling stories about. And it won't be predicated on whether you got your doctrine perfect. And it won't be predicated upon whether you have the respect of the establishment. Uh, but when the truth is told, there will be stories told of people who open their lives to love and let it flow through them. And I know when I look back on this season, uh, if there's anything I hope for myself, it's that I'll be able to say that even imperfectly, um, even in fits and starts, uh, I said, yes, I want to be one of the ones who loves. So uh, I hope this question will interrogate you. I hope you open your heart to it. And perhaps hear Jesus not putting a heavy burden on you as much as inviting you uh, into the current. Grace and peace, friends. Uh, we love you and hope we see you soon.